2: I could not get
0: enough of Nancy Drew. I probably read every book published up to that point at least three times. While I had one librarian who frowned upon my constant diet of Drew, luckily I also had parents and teachers who encouraged me, something I'm very grateful for because I'm sure it is because of this series that I'm a reader today. As I've worked with a wide range of readers, I've found that series books are often an important part of reading development. Becoming immersed in the adventure of a favorite character or revisiting a stunning world is something that is very comforting for a lot of people. Familiar comfort alone seems reason enough to enjoy books in a series. But research also shows that series are an important part of a young reader's development. In fact, research has shown that the best readers and writers are often those who read series. This is because reading series books gives them the practice that they need to learn how a story works and to get comfortable with literary conventions that govern all literature. Because they have reoccurring patterns, series books also allow readers to build stamina with long texts without having to be derailed by too many new elements. This was certainly my own personal experience. The patterns of Nancy Drew are what helped me focus on the things I struggled with without getting too overwhelmed. They showed me that I could get lost in a book, thus helping me build my confidence as a reader. With that confidence, I progressed onto many other things, and even though I still love a good Nancy Drew story, I have a wide range of reading tastes today that I owe a lot to those first reading experiences. So, when your child reads books in a series over and over, remember that, like all skills, reading takes practice. And remember that here at Rachel's World, we believe that sometimes a
2: series is just the right kind of practice. Nonfiction. Kids today can find an endless supply of it. But sometimes nonfiction gets a bad rap because of negative encounters with it in childhood. Today, Rachel visits with Terrell Young, a children's literature expert at BYU, about the amazing world of nonfiction and all the fascinating opportunities that are out there. Terrell has served on numerous award committees and is co author of many books, including Children's Literature Briefly and Independent Reading Creating Lifelong Readers. Here's Rachel and Terry.
0: We're in studio with Terry today. Welcome, Terry.
3: Thank you so much.
0: You know, one of the things that I think is interesting is that there is a wide scope of nonfiction available today for kids to read. But a lot of people judge nonfiction based on their own experiences with nonfiction, which tend to be sometimes negative. So let's open the world of nonfiction to people today and and help explore this This amazing scope of what's available. So tell us first define nonfiction for us. What what is the definition of what we're looking at today?
3: Okay. Well two standard definitions of nonfiction. One is it's factual stories about real people, real places and real events. And then others paraphrase that and say that nonfiction is about the scientific world, the historical world, and the artistic world, and again, all factual.
0: Some people call nonfiction informational books. So is there a distinction between those two terms?
3: Yeah, typically what we would say is that there are two different nonfiction genres. We have the biographies, so all the life stories, and then informational books. And with adult books, we typically just refer to informational books as nonfiction.
0: So it's kind of a distinction there between a more specific thing of of nonfiction. Right. Right. So when, we, when we're when we looking particularly at informational books, those that are not biographies, a lot of people think that they're boring, but that's really not true of a lot of the, the informational books that are being published for children today. So how has that genre, how has that scope of informational books changed over the years?
3: Well, it's changed quite dramatically. It's changed in the way it's written. So it's written in a very engaging and exciting format that kids find very appealing. And then the visual appeal of nonfiction today is just really exciting. Uh, Technology's made it possible to reproduce photographs and different types of illustrations and charts and tables that are just incredible. And I think we live in a much more visual world than when you and I were children. And so that's just more of an expectation. And And kids have been raised on many more types of visual experiences than what we had. And so to to see these beautiful, incredible, life-looking photographs and other illustrations, I, I think children find that very appealing, and it just draws them into a book, holds their attention, and hangs on to that attention until they've completed the book. I have a... A grandson. And when he was two, I gave him Lawrence Pringle's uh, "Frogs, Strange and Wonderful. And his parents couldn't read it to him the same way they did stories, uh, because he would want them to stop and talk. He'd ask questions and point to things. And he was just so incredibly interested about everything he could find about frogs. And so they found themselves going on the internet and looking for pictures showing the frog zapping flies and other insects from the air with its tongue. And, and he loved that. And when he started preschool as a four-year-old, he wanted to be a frog for Halloween. So they found him a frog costume. And it was really important for him that all of his classmates know that he wasn't just a frog, but he was a leopard frog. So...
0: See, it really goes to show how this nonfiction can take children to a very deep level. It's it's not just about frogs or dinosaurs or trucks. It's about really getting into the deep factual information. Let's switch gears a little bit, though, and and talk about biographies. So okay. let's talk about um, what, what are the characteristics of a good biography for children?
3: Well, a good biography for children would show a balanced perspective perspective of the subject. So for instance, um, a biography today would show, for instance, uh, Martin Luther King or Abraham Lincoln, they're two of the most popular subjects for biographies, they would show them as real people with warts and all. And they wouldn't go to the point where some adult biographies would to try to have character assassination or anything of that nature, but they'd show them as a balanced perspective where In the 60s and 70s, biographies tried to portray people as being almost heroic superhumans that children couldn't really relate to. But reading a biography about um, Abraham Lincoln by Russell Friedman, on the other hand, um, he would use quotes from Abraham Lincoln to talk about his homely appearance and other things. And, And so... He would do a much better. Russell Friedman would do a much better job of breathing life into a subject than others have done in the past.
0: And I think that's really important, particularly with nonfiction biography and informational books. This sense of breathing life into it—it it adds something that we get, we don't get in a textbook very directly because they tend to take the life out of it. So, how do authors do that? How do they breathe this wonderful life into these stories?
3: Well, there are a couple of things that they do. One is um, they use a writing style that has voice, and their writing is really engaging and keeps kids' attention. And the other thing that uh, Freeman in particular and others like him are especially good at is using the subject's own words as much as possible to bring that person to life, and that reveals a portion of the personality And then the efforts that they go to to find illustrations and pictures to accompany that adds so much to it.
0: That is a really important thing, because I think a lot of uh, nonfiction biography and informational books that we read today are more in that kind of narrative style. And we consider that narrative nonfiction, but that's not the only way information is presented. So what are the other kinds of formats or um, styles that we see used in nonfiction text today?
3: Well, like you said, most of the nonfiction is narrative. But uh, something that's equally or maybe even a little bit more important is the expository work. And the reason that's more important is because it's more like textbooks. And so kids who are more familiar with encountering those expository text structures in trade books then will do better in their reading of the textbooks. And so you'll find typically there are five or six common Text structures that you find in expository texts: compare and contrast, um, problem solution, question-answer, description, to name a few. And so authors write in that form, and and that frees up kids because typically with narrative, we tend to read cover to cover. But with expository writing, uh, the authors have used different navigational devices such as indexes and tables of contents – so kids could look at just specific information that they're really interested in. And then teachers could also use that as an opportunity to teach them how to use those navigational devices, such as headings and boldface print. So I think that's really something that's important. And like I've mentioned before, it's probably neglected a little bit.
0: So how do we make it not neglected? What what do we need to do, particularly as parents or concerned adults, help boister nonfiction?
3: <laughs> well, When I was a classroom teacher, what I would do is I would pick out just really engaging parts of the book and just read those. I'd say, believe it or not, but a rat can scale a a five-story building and fall off and not hurt himself and just really kind of incredible facts. And so then the kids would be really anxious to find out more about them. I used to do book talks when I taught in Washington in elementary classrooms, and and so I would just read a portion of the first chapter of books or just tell a little bit about it or even tell kids that they could ask me 10 questions that could be answered yes or no about information they could find in the book. And kids were highly motivated to read those books.
0: Those are some good examples. You mentioned earlier developmentally appropriate. So how would you define that particularly for nonfiction?
3: Well, that's kind of hard to define because we often look at things by levels. But with nonfiction, it's really more about interest and background knowledge. So for instance, my oldest son, um, when he was in first and second grade, I would take him to the library and he wanted all these books on mummies and Native Americans that he really couldn't read himself. And so I'd read them to him. And then after a while, he had so much information and such a keen interest that he could read books. That were much more advanced than his reading level on any other topic, and so I've heard it say said that seventy percent of success with nonfiction is based on your background knowledge, and so finding things that kids are already interested in, I think that's really what makes it developmentally appropriate.
0: I think that's an important thing to remember because we need to really focus on you know what background they've had, and I've I've seen uh, like. A six-year-old read a book on dinosaurs that would probably go over my head because they've be- built that background knowledge, that base that they needed. So that's a good thing to remember. Start with the simple stuff, build the background knowledge, and, and move up. That's uh, really great information for today, Terry. Thank you so much for sharing us with us your knowledge
2: of nonfiction.
3: Well, thanks for having me.
2: That was Rachel Wadham and Terrell Young exploring the rich and rewarding world of nonfiction. You're listening to World's Awaiting. Next, Rachel visits with Martin Fujiki and Bonnie Brinton, professors in the BYU Department of Communication Disorders, who discuss language impairment, how to spot it in your child, and where to go to find help. Dr. Martin Fujiki and Dr. Bonnie Brinton are both experienced speech pathologists and researchers in that field. Here's Rachel with Martin and Bonnie.
0: We're in studio today with Bonnie and Martin. Welcome. We're glad to have you here. I'm excited to talk to you today because with your experience and expertise, particularly in language impairments and interventions for children, I think this is going to be a really interesting thing for our audience to kind of understand the scope of what this is and maybe how to look at it if they know children in their lives that, that are facing these kinds of challenges. So first off, Bonnie, why don't you define for us what, what are we talking about when we're talking about language impairments? What, what is it that we're thinking about?
4: Language impairment is a fairly common disorder. To fix about 7% of kindergartners, so that's a tremendous amount of children. And what we see in kids with language impairment is they have difficulty acquiring language in uh, like typical kids do. It may be slower. It is more difficult. Um, they have problems with uh, um, the structural aspects of language, learning the words, putting sentences together, learning the, the grammatical parts of language. Um, they also tend to have difficulty choreographing conversations and being responsive uh, in conversation. And there's also a huge social and emotional learning piece uh, in that as well. So it's a disability that affects all modalities of language, speaking, listening, reading, writing, signing of the child signs. That is a, a really kind of broad scope. So Martin, could you
0: maybe explain to us a little bit about what would it be like for a child to live with these kind of things? And particularly, how does it affect those social and emotional skills?
5: Well, it's important to realize that different children react differently and have different kinds of problems. Um, In one child, you might find um, a largely expressive deficit. So they seem to understand a lot of what is said, but they have a lot of trouble expressing themselves, a lot of trouble making um, well-formed sentences. And, and that can be a handicap. But the, the even bigger handicap is when the child doesn't understand what is said. And then that can make life pretty difficult because um, not understanding language impacts all kinds of interactions. It impacts learning in the classroom, impacts social interactions. Um, you know, people, when you don't understand, um, people – treat you like you're not very smart or you're not paying attention Uh, in terms of social and emotional learning. It certainly impacts relationships. And um, there are some aspects of language impairment that are not really visible, uh, such as not being able to read the emotions uh, of other people or not being able to take the perspective of other people. And, And when you can't do that, Again, those kinds of problems certainly impact your social relationships.
0: That is an important thing, I think, for us to remember because if there is such a large number of children out there and they are facing these kinds of things, that it affects all aspects of their life. So, Bonnie, particularly for a a parent or someone who – an adult who's caring for a child, what would they might look for to see – particularly in a young child, if this might be of a concern, that that a language impairment is something that they need to be watching out for and maybe work to get some professional help for?
4: Well, when we think about toddlers um – Children. Most children get their first words right around 12 months. And uh, it's that period where you get those words and then there are a few words and by the time they are 18 months old, uh, they usually have about 50 words and they're combining those into little sentences. And then language development kind of goes like a wildfire. Kids with language impairment Many of them, that's a, that's a much slower process. Sometimes those words are late in coming, or sometimes a few words will come right around 12 months, but then at 18 months, you still see the same few words, and that's not a typical pattern. So it tends to be slower. It tends to be harder, more difficult time putting those little sentences together, making them sound um, grammatical uh more difficulty expressing themselves. Like Martin said, if they have receptive difficulties, you'll see difficulty following verbal directions, not because they're not compliant, they don't not because they don't want to follow them, because they don't understand uh the words and the structures. And that can be a real
0: challenge for parents. So Martin, what do you think would be the first step for a parent or adult if they start seeing these kinds of atypical patterns in their children? What what should they do?
5: Well um A good way of approaching this, I think, would be to um, talk to your preschool teacher, talk to your elementary school teacher as a starting point. Um, That would be one way of getting the opinion of someone who's around a lot of children and has a lot of comparisons. Um, If it's decided that the child needs some kind of assessment, then um, if you're in a school system, uh, then you would have speech-language pathology services available. Um, if not, you might need to go to a private clinic. But uh, a speech pathologist could give you a pretty good assessment in terms of whether or not more needs to be done. Uh, and, you know, as a parent looking at a child, uh, if the child seems to be stuck... And just kind of in the same place, that's probably one of the biggest clues that you might have that there would be a problem. Starting a little later to speak than other kids wouldn't be nearly as serious as seeming to start and then just be stuck there.
0: I I like that sense of being – being stuck i think that's a great way for parents to look at it cuz sometimes it's really difficult as parents or adults to really understand is this typical or is it not typical or how does how does that work so it, that can be really confusing particularly for parents so how can how can adults better be attuned to to what their needs of their child are? There are there suggestions that you have to help them feel feel more confident, particularly if this is gonna be something that's really, really serious and and require a lot of intervention and help
4: for, for the child to to f- have some success? Well, I'd say the first thing you want to do is watch your child very carefully. Don't feel that you have to jump in there and over talk them. Watch what they're doing and um, wait, see what's interesting to them and then try to engage their attention, try to make an emotional connection, and then say something that is simple enough that you think they can understand it and has to do with something they are interested in. Um, Frequently, we want to talk about a lot of things that, Uh, kids don't find quite as interesting and you see this for example you go to the zoo and you watch parents with their children as watching in a a gorilla enclosure once and there was a little toddler there with the parents and parents are going look look at the big gorilla look at the big gorilla and the um, little child was focused on a smaller gorilla much closer that was uh, had its arms uh, uh, clenched around itself and was kind of shaking and the child was going cold 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 And the child thought the gorilla was shivering, and the parent was going, no, you've got to look at the silverback. Look over there. Look at that one, rather than focus and go, oh, yeah, gorilla's cold. She's very cold. She needs a sweater.
0: I like that. That's wonderful. I I really think that um, this idea of intervention and working with a speech-language pathologist is really important. So what tips do you have for parents to make that kind of professional relationship with a speech-language pathologist and, and to find out how to work really well with those types of professionals that can, that can help them
4: along this path. You know, speech-language pathologists love to work with involved parents. We are anxious to work with parents. The younger the child, the more we try to hand over the intervention to the parent uh, because any way you look at it, the parent is with the child all the time. The parent knows the child's needs The parent's going to know what works best. What we try to do is enable and empower parents to interact most effectively with their kids to make the best connection and to put themselves in the best teaching place. That's wonderful. Martin?
5: Yeah, and it's important for parents to know that the standard model for early intervention, so working with a child, you know, six months, a year, 18 months, is to train the parents to do most of the interaction, most of the therapy. Because the parent is going to be there all the time. And it's like having a therapist there all the time. And early intervention is great in terms of the gains that we see.
0: So you see lots of success with early interventions? Oh yes. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And what what would we talk how early is early? What, when would this start? Well, yeah, I've
4: had parents say, well, you can't do anything for my child because they're not talking yet. But a lot of communication and a lot of language foundation happens long before those first words. So as soon as a parent is concerned about the connection they're making with their child, if it doesn't feel right, if they feel like the child is distant, um, they should ask for some help and support. So this is way before even you would start school sometimes. Oh, yes, long before.
5: Yeah. So if you have a child who's just not very interactive, who just seems to lay there and not respond at all, then that would be the first clue that you might want to pay attention and, and kind of watch development. Um, it might be that you know the child would grow out of that, but that's oftentimes the first thing that we would focus on.
0: Well, and that's a good place to start. Thank you so much, Bonnie and Martin, for coming and speaking about this complex topic with us today. And I hope that this has given a little information to our parents out there who might have concerns or need a greater understanding and that they can seek out the the professionals like you who can help engage with their
2: children in this way. We're so grateful for your time today. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank
5: you.
2: Doctors Bonnie Brinton and Martin Fujiki offering advice for helping children who struggle with language impairment. We finish up the show today with three young adult book authors, Tim Wynn-Jones, Martine Levitt, and Patrice Kindle, who share tips with youth and adults who want to enter the world of writing.
0: What advice would you give to young writers to help encourage them
1: in their writing? Well, I think the most important thing is to... Write whatever you want to write. Now, you know, we all have to write things in school, and the stories we write in school are often not very interesting. Um, but when you're writing on your own, you can write whatever you want. And I would say, and this, is, of course, goes flies in the face of what any teacher would say, when you're writing on your own, you don't have to finish something. If you get bored with it, then don't keep writing it. Because, and jump to, do, to something else. I don't know, how, I, I have, every writer I know has written many, many stories that they didn't finish. Um, and they didn't finish it because they got bored with it. Well, I think that uh, I, uh, what I want to say to young readers is, is, is write something that's fun and exciting for yourself. And the minute it stops being fun and exciting, uh, you know, stop and do something else. The thing is that that prepares the, a writing muscle in, in a young writer. One of the worst things that can happen if you're young is you get a good idea, but you just you haven't done enough exercise, so to speak. You haven't written enough to be able to carry out this, this good idea. So the more you write, even if you don't finish things, the more you write, the more muscle you're getting, the more writing muscle. And then one day you get the really big idea, and it's worth pushing on, and you keep pushing on. And, uh, and before you know it, voila, you've got something... Um, you know, big, maybe even a novel, but you can't do that without um, the play. You have to play at it. You have to enjoy it before you can do, get down to the work.:
2: I would say to read a lot, to write a lot, have fun, Don't feel like you have to finish things. Just have fun. Um, writing is like anything else. The more you do it, the better you get. I would say also that as they live their faith, it will enrich their art. They do not have to leave their faith behind in order to be artists. In fact, just the opposite. And so I think that's probably, if I had to distill it down to just one or two things, that would be it.
6: Most writers, every once in a while you will find an exception to this, but most writers are addictive readers. They read a lot. You need to read a lot, and you need to write a lot. You need to have broad interests. You need to not just read in your own genre, read them there, absolutely do, but you need to take in the world This is one of the wonderful things about being a writer, is that you are always learning. You are always um, finding out more about the solar system, about, um, you know, uh, biology, about all kinds of things that broaden your world. This is one of the reasons that people are willing to, you know, be artists, because even though it's a somewhat uncertain way of earning a living, it is such a richly in rewarding and satisfying experience go out and learn and experience and then come home and sit down and give yourself a make make sure you do sit down and work regularly that's that's always an important one that's the only real rule is you have to do it <laughs> just talking about doing it is not the same thing as doing it. Perfect advice.
2: Three authors of young adult books, Tim Wynn-Jones, Martine Levitt, and Patrice Kendall, sharing writing tips. Thanks for listening to World's Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 143, on the TuneIn app and at byuradio.org.